Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today we are going to talk about Ignatius Sancho, who, among a number of other firsts, was the first Black Briton to vote in a parliamentary election that happened in 1774. He became something of a celebrity in 18th century London, but documentation of his life, especially his early life, is a little bit spotty today. First, we should talk a little bit about the world that Ignatius Sancho lived in. During his lifetime, England's population grew from about six and a half to about seven million people, and somewhere between 15,000 and 20,000 of them were Black. Most of England's Black population lived in cities, with two-thirds or more living in London. But these numbers are really, really approximate. The first British census wasn't conducted until 1801, so these are definitely estimations. Slavery was legal and practiced in England, so some of this population that we're talking about was enslaved. Many of England's Black population worked as household staff. Wealthy people considered it fashionable to have specifically Black household help, whether enslaved or free. One trend was to have a Black valet or maid who acted as a personal assistant or a traveling companion, as well as a conversation piece for other white aristocrats I said valet instead of valet because I've been watching a lot of Downton Abbey. Yeah, that's how you do. Uh, Of course, regardless of whether they were free or enslaved, not every Black person in England was doing domestic work. Many were or had been sailors, and many former sailors worked as laborers or dock workers. Black workers also took industrial jobs in cities, including things like processing and repackaging imported goods like sugar and tobacco, which had been grown in the Americas using enslaved labor. 18th century England was also home to Black performers and musicians, as well as Black music teachers and composers. Although some were recruited or conscripted for things like regimental bands, it wasn't particularly common for Black performers to gain access to other white ensembles or to white performance spaces. Instead, many Black musicians performed at home and within an evolving Black social scene. In the words of a 1764 article in the London Chronicle, quote, Among the sundry, fashionable routes or clubs that are held in town, that of the Blacks or the Negro servants is not the least. On Wednesday last, no less than 57 of them, men and women, supped, drank, and entertained themselves with dancing and music, consisting of violins, French horns, and other instruments at a public house in Fleet Street till four in the morning. No whites were allowed to be present, for all the performers were all Black. While most of England's Black population had come or been brought from the Americas and the Caribbean, some had arrived from Africa. This included diplomats and dignitaries from African nations and students whose families had sent them to English universities to study. All of this together meant that England's Black population in the 18th century was predominantly male. It was not uncommon for free Black men to marry working-class white women. During Ignatius Sancho's lifetime, England was also the dominant force in the transatlantic slave trade. Slave ships operated from numerous British ports, including London, and while Ignatius Sancho was alive, the two largest slave ports were Bristol and Liverpool. A vast amount of British wealth came directly from this trade and from goods produced in the Caribbean and the Americas using enslaved labor. 
A movement for the abolition of slavery and the slave trade started to evolve in Britain during Sancho's lifetime, although formal organizations with this goal, including the Sons of Africa, were not established until after his death. However, in 1772, William Murray, the first Earl of Mansfield and the Lord Chief Justice of Britain, issued a ruling in the Somerset case, which ruled that enslaved people who escaped their enslavement in England could not be captured and returned to slavery abroad. Although many enslaved people living at the time interpreted this as having ended slavery entirely, its real effects were much more limited than that. And we talked about this ruling previously in our episode Three Astonishing Bells. Ignatius Sancho had connections to all of this history, but as we noted, some of the details are spotty. Brief glimpses of his last few years survived thanks to some published letters. We're going to talk about those letters more later. But beyond that, his first biographer was Welsh barrister and politician Joseph Jekyll, whose brief account of Sancho's life was published with the letters. For the first several printings of these letters, this biography was published anonymously. Jekyll's name was finally included in the fifth edition, which came out in 1803. Joseph Jekyll was born in 1754, which would have made him about 26 when Sancho died. And in the years after Sancho's death, he became a member of Parliament. In terms of when both men were living, uh, Jekyll studied at Oxford in the late 1760s and was called to the bar at Lincoln's Inn in London in 1778. During those same years, Sancho was living and working in London, including at a grocery that became a gathering place for writers and musicians and a fashionable place for affluent people to be seen shopping because of the novelty of its Black proprietor. So it's definitely within the realm of possibility that these two men did know each other or that they at least met. And we do have a surviving letter from Sancho's son, William, who wrote to Jekyll to thank him for some service to their family and for some corrections, that's his word. And that's probably in reference to footnotes that appear in the 1803 edition of Sancho's letters. So it's possible that Jekyll's knowledge of Sancho's life came from Sancho himself or from his family, But a lot of what he describes is really impossible to corroborate, and some of it just contradicts documentation that does exist. Jekyll also doesn't mention some of the most notable parts of Sancho's life, while also including other details that seem pretty improbable. Also, it's clear that in writing and publishing this biography, Jekyll was trying to contradict racist ideas that were used to justify the institution of slavery instead showing Sancho as a human being with innate worth. Here is a quote. He who surveys the extent of intellect to which Ignatius Sancho had attained by self-education will perhaps conclude that the perfection of the reasoning faculties does not depend on a peculiar confirmation of the skull or the color of a common integument in defiance of that wild opinion, which, says a learned writer of these times, restrains the operations of the mind to particular regions and supposes that a luckless mortal may be born in a degree of latitude too high or too low for wisdom or for wit. So, (laughs) to add a little explanation to that, the learned writer of these times that he references was Samuel Johnson, who was writing about John Milton when he made that comment. And as a side note, that 1803 edition of Sancho's letters also included this statement, quote, Dr. Johnson had promised to write the life of Ignatius Sancho, which afterwards he neglected to do, and it was accordingly written by Mr. Jekyll in imitation of Dr. Johnson's style. 
In other words, Joseph Jekyll thought Ignatius Sancho was notable enough to have been written about by Samuel Johnson, regardless of whether Johnson ever specifically said that. At the same time, even though Jekyll seems to have been motivated by reinforcing the intrinsic humanity of a Black man living in 18th century England and dispelling racist ideas, he also repeats some of the day's racist stereotypes about Africans. That makes it hard to figure out which parts of his account are real and which are exaggerated, and at this point, it is just not possible to know where any of his information came from. Having gotten through all that context, we will get to what we know, or at least what we think we know, about Ignatius Sancho's life after a sponsor break. Joseph Jekyll's biography describes Ignatius Sancho as being born on a slave ship in 1729, en route from Guinea in West Africa to Cartagena in Colombia. This very earliest moment in his account of Sancho's life is also the very first thing that seems to be undermined by the actual historical record, because there was not a ship that made that particular voyage in 1729. For his part, in a letter written in 1780, Sancho described himself as, quote, born in Africa. That suggested that he was, or at least believed that he was, born in Africa, Jekyll goes on to say that Sancho was named Ignatius at his baptism, which was performed by the bishop, but he doesn't really elaborate on what might have prompted a bishop to baptize an enslaved baby. According to Jekyll, Ignatius's mother died while he was still a baby, and his father took his own life rather than being enslaved. Then, when Ignatius was between two and three, his enslaver took him to England and gave him to, quote, three maiden sisters resident at Greenwich. According to historian Anne Dingsdale, this may have been Elizabeth, Susanna, and Barbara Legg, who lived in Blackheath, which is adjacent to Greenwich. That is the right number of sisters and roughly the right location, but this is still conjecture. Another conjecture is that the young Ignatius Sancho is depicted in the painting Taste in High Life by past podcast subject William Hogarth. That painting was completed in the 1740s, and it satirizes upper-class women and their fashion choices. Seated in a chair on the left side of the canvas in this painting is a black page. The Yale Center for British Art describes this identification as this page in the uh, painting as Ignatius Sancho as traditional but implausible. (laughs) Listen, everybody's always said it, (laughs) but it really doesn't make any sense. Uh, Jekyll also says these three sisters were the ones who gave Ignatius the last name of Sancho because they thought that he resembled Don Quixote's squire, Sancho Panza. In Spanish, Panza means belly, and it stems from the Latin word for paunch. This makes Sancho's name a little bit complicated. It is the name he used his whole life, and later on, he called his daughters his Sanchonettas, but it was a name that was given to him as an insult because of his weight. Ignatius Sancho described his early years this way in a letter to Lawrence Stern, the author of The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy, Gentleman. Quote, The first part of my life was rather unlucky, as I was placed in a family who judged ignorance the best and only security for obedience. A little reading and writing I got by unwearied application. The latter part of my life has been, through God's blessing, truly fortunate, having spent it in the service of one of the best and greatest families in the kingdom. My chief pleasure has been books, philanthropy I adore. 
the best and greatest family seems to be the House of Montague, beginning with John, second Duke of Montague. The Duke had previously been governor of Jamaica, and one of his residences in England was Montague House in Blackheath, just across from the Leg Sisters. Earlier in his life, the Duke had reportedly funded the education of Francis Williams, an enslaved man from Jamaica, although Williams's attendance at Cambridge is not actually documented. The Duke seems to have taken an interest in Sancho, giving him books and encouraging him in his studies. The Duke died in 1749, and it seems that sometime after that, the three sisters that we mentioned earlier threatened to send Sancho to the Caribbean. Sancho went to Montague's widow, Lady Mary, Duchess of Montague, for help. In Jekyll's words, when she refused, he, quote, procured an old pistol for purposes which his father's example had suggested as familiar and had sanctified as hereditary. In this frame of mind, the futility of remonstrance was obvious. At that point, the Duchess hired Sancho as a butler, and he worked with her until her death in 1751. In her will, she bequeathed him 70 pounds, along with an annuity of 30 pounds per year. Sancho used this money to try to make his own way in London. He may have tried a career on the stage, appearing in Shakespeare's Othello and Afroban's Orinoco, but according to Jekyll, quote, a defective and incorrigible articulation rendered it abortive, which was a roundabout way of saying he didn't work out with that because he had a speech disorder. Sancho's tastes outstripped his income in London, though. This is where Jekyll describes his behavior as, quote, a disposition of African texture. But really, none of this seems particularly unusual for a 22-year-old living as a free man with some money of his own for the first time. He enjoyed himself with cards and theater and women before realizing that he could not support that kind of lifestyle on his annuity. He once again turned to the House of Montague, this time George, Duke of Montague and Earl of Cardigan, whose wife Mary was the daughter of the late John and Mary Montague. The details here are a little bit sketchy, but he was most likely employed as George's valet. On December 17, 1758, Ignatius Sancho married Anne Osborne, described as a Black woman from the West Indies. They had at least six children together, William, known as Billy, Kitty, Fanny, Lydia, Mary, and Elizabeth, known as Eliza. We don't know much at all about Anne, but we do know from Sancho's letters that she was literate, that she had a brother named John, and that their two families were close. It's also clear from Sancho's letters that he truly, dearly loved his wife and children. Sancho continued to work as part of the Montague household staff after he got married. In 1768, he had his portrait painted by Thomas Gainsborough, who was one of Britain's most fashionable and renowned artists in the 18th century. This happened in Bath when Gainsborough came to do a portrait of Lady Elizabeth Montague, who was George and Mary's daughter. Even though Sancho was working as household staff at this point, he is not wearing livery in the portrait, and he's using the the hand-in-the-waistcoat pose that was common in portraits of the upper class in the 18th and 19th centuries. Today, that portrait is in the collection of the National Gallery of Canada. By the time he was in his 40s, Sancho's health made it difficult for him to continue working in domestic service. He had asthma and gout, and the gout in particular became increasingly painful and debilitating. So in 1773, the family gave him a small annuity to help him start a grocery store, which he ran and managed with the help of his wife. And another example of how 18th century England was deeply connected to slavery, the most important products in his stock were tobacco, sugar, and tea, 
all of which were being grown through the use of enslaved labor. The grocery was at number 20 Charles Street in Westminster, and while the building itself is now the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, the shop's former location is marked with a historical plaque today. In addition to selling goods, Sancho also made it into something of a literary salon, hosting discussions among prominent writers and musicians. Regular visitors may have included formerly enslaved abolitionists Otoba Cuguano and Olauda Equiano. Known visitors included aspiring writer George Cumberland, politician Charles James Fox, antiquary Richard Payne Knight, and artist John Hamilton Mortimer. As we noted earlier, the grocery also became something of a tourist attraction, with wealthy people making it a point to shop there because of its proprietor, known as the Remarkable Negro, In other words, Sancho had assimilated into middle-class British society to the point that he was able to have his own shop and his own home and all these connections, but he was still definitely an outsider within that society. Joseph Jekyll described the grocery this way, quote, A commerce with the muses was supported amid the trivial and momentary interruptions of a shop. The poets were studied and even imitated with some success. Two pieces were constructed for the stage. The theory of music was discussed, published, and dedicated to the Princess Royal. And painting was so much within the circle of Ignatius Sancho's judgment and criticism that Mortimer came often to consult him. Such was the man whose species philosophers and anatomists have endeavored to degrade as a deterioration of the human. And such was the man whom Fuller, with a benevolence and quaintness of phrase peculiarly his own, accounteth, God's image, though cut in ebony. Since he owned the grocery store in his home, Sancho was eligible to vote in the British elections, which at the time were open only to male property holders. That was, of course, a tiny, tiny fraction of the British population. Sancho voted in 1774, making him the first Black Briton known to do so, and he voted again in 1780. Also, in 1780, he witnessed the anti-Catholic Gordon riots, something that he wrote about in his letters. Toward the end of his life, these letters were really the primary way that Sancho kept up with his enormous social circle. The decline in his health had made it difficult to impossible for him to go visit people. In addition to his general correspondence, he also wrote letters to newspapers and to public figures, many of them advocating for the abolition of slavery. His last letters to friends and family make frequent mentions of illness and pain and visits from doctors. Ignatius Santo died on December 14, 1780. He was buried at St. Margaret's Westminster on December 17th. In addition to his other firsts, he was the first person of African descent to have an obituary published in the British newspapers. Although Joseph Jekyll's biography is the source of a lot of the information that we've mentioned so far, we get a better sense of Ignatius Sancho's own thoughts and personality through his letters. And we'll talk more about that after we first have a sponsor break. After Ignatius Sancho died, his son William took over the grocery before eventually becoming a librarian for naturalist Joseph Banks and also opening a bookshop. That made William Sancho England's first known Black bookseller. And since he published some of his father's work, as well as an edition of Voltaire, he was also England's first known Black publisher. William Sancho also worked with Francis Crewe, who had been one of Ignatius's correspondents on publishing a collection of his father's selected letters after his father's death. 
In Crew's words, she was motivated by, quote, the desire of showing that an untutored African may possess abilities equal to a European, and the still superior motive of wishing to serve his worthy family. Sancho had actually become publicly known for his letter writing while he was still living, thanks to an exchange of letters with author Lawrence Stern, a 1766 letter that Sancho wrote to Stern, and then three letters that Stern wrote back to Sancho were included in the letters of the late Reverend Lawrence Stern to his most intimate friends. That was first published in 1775. Sancho wrote this letter after reading Stern's Job's account of the shortness and troubles of life, which included a passage about slavery being a bitter draught. Sancho's letter to Stern was a little like a fan letter, but it was also a request for Stern to take up the issue of slavery more powerfully in his own writing. We read a bit of this letter earlier in the episode. Beyond what we already read, Sancho went on to talk about how much he appreciated the character of Uncle Toby in Tristram Shandy, before saying, quote, "'Consider how great a part of our species in all ages down to this.'" have been trod under the feet of cruel and capricious tyrants who would neither hear their cries nor pity their distresses. Consider slavery, what it is, how bitter a draught, and how many millions are made to drink of it. From there, Sancho went on to say that none of his favorite authors had ever, quote, drawn a tear in favor of my miserable black brethren, the only exceptions being Stern and the author of Sir George Ellison, That's the history of Sir George Ellison, which was published in 1766 by Sarah Scott. Then Sancho went on to say, quote, I think you will forgive me. I am sure you will applaud me for beseeching you to give one half hour's attention to slavery, as it is at this day practiced in our West Indies. That subject handled in your striking manner would ease the yoke, perhaps, of many. But if only one, gracious God, what a feast to a benevolent heart. Stern's reply to this began, quote, There is a strange coincidence, Sancho, in the little events as well as in the great ones of this world. For I had been writing a tender tale of the sorrows of a friendless poor Negro girl, and my eyes had scarce done smarting with it when your letter of recommendation in behalf of so many of her brethren and sisters came to me. But why her brethren, or yours, Sancho, any more than mine? Stern's reply went on to say, in part, quote, But tis no uncommon thing, my good Sancho, for one half of the world to use the other half of it like brutes, and then endeavor to make them so. For my part, I never look westward, when I am in a pensive mood at least, but I think of the burdens which our brothers and sisters are there carrying. Stern's letter to Sancho was circulated in abolitionist literature after it was published, and the same was true of Sancho's own letters. Sancho also seemed to pattern his own writing style after Stern's and Tristram Shandy, using lots and lots of dashes and something of a wandering style. There's been some debate among literary critics about whether this was a sort of superfan's fawning mimicry of their favorite author's style or not. Sancho was definitely a huge fan of Stern, even owning a cast of a statue representing Stern's head, but it could also just be Sancho's own genuine voice and possibly a written approximation of how he actually spoke. These letters that Sancho wrote are candid, wry, ironic, sometimes a little suggestive, and often self-deprecating. Here's an example from a 1777 letter to artist and printmaker John Mehew, who was a clerk on the Board of Control. Sancho writes about having been ill and about how the gout in his hand was making even writing painful, and then an ink blot fell on the page. 
He wrote, I hope, confound the ink, what a blot. Now don't you dare suppose I was in fault. No, sir, the pen was diabled, the paper worse. There was a concatenation of ill-sorted chances all coincided to contribute to that fatal blot which has so disarranged my ideas that I must perforce finish before I had half disburthened my head and heart. Uh, in some printed editions of Sancho's letters, the ink blot in question is is reproduced on the page, like with a, <laughs> a smudgy little, some sort of like typeface that they created to be like, this is the ink blot character that we will use to print this. I love it. The letters also give glimpses into what it was like to be a Black man living in London. A 1777 letter describes a night out in Vauxhall, courtesy of a Monsieur L. Quote, If you should happen to know him, you may tell him from me that last night, three great girls, a boy and a fat old fellow, were as happy and pleased as a fine evening. Fine place, good songs, much company, and good music could make them. Heaven and earth, how happy, how delighted were the girls. Oh, the pleasures of novelty to youth. We went by water, had a coach home, were gazed at, followed, etc., etc., but not much abused. Sancho's criticisms of slavery include a reference to past podcast subject Phyllis Wheatley, specifically to the fact that John and Susanna Wheatley continued to enslave her while also helping to publish her work. Quote, it reflects nothing either to the glory or generosity of her master, if she is still his slave, except he glories in the low vanity of having in his wanton power a mind animated by heaven, a genius superior to himself. Uh, this letter was written in 1778, at which point Phyllis Wheatley had been manumitted. In a 1778 letter to Jack Wingrave, Sancho responds to earlier letters in which Wingrave had described Africans as deceitful. Sancho writes, quote, My good friend, you should remember from whom they learnt those vices, before going on to condemn the institution of slavery and England's participation in it. Sancho acknowledges that he himself has enjoyed what he called many blessings living in England before describing the nation's conduct as uniformly wicked in the Indies and in Guinea. He then goes on to say, quote, In Africa, the poor wretched natives, blessed with the most fertile and luxuriant soil, are rendered so much the more miserable for what providence meant as a blessing. The Christians' abominable traffic for slaves and the horrid cruelty and treachery of the petty kings, encouraged by their Christian customers who carry them strong liquors to inflame their national madness and powder and bad firearms to furnish them with the hellish means of killing and kidnapping. Beyond these selections, Sancho's letters ranged all over in terms of their content. There's gossip, ordinary goings-on, what was happening with Sancho and his family, and observations of what was happening around him. He wrote to other Black men who were embarking on their free adult lives with advice and guidance. Some of his letters also include requests for help, like soliciting donations to help Black Londoners in need. In the words of European Magazine in 1782, through his letters, Sancho, quote, presents to us the naked effusions of a Negro's heart, and it shows it glowing with the finest philanthropy and the purest affections. They have more warmth than elegance of diction and more feeling than correctness. As we've talked about before, publishing books at this point involved getting subscribers to buy the book in advance. The first edition of Sancho's Letters, which came out in 1782, had 1,181 subscribers. And subscribers were all over the social and economic spectrum, including servants, artists, and politicians, and including the prime minister. 
Sancho's letters became an immediate bestseller, with five editions published between 1782 and 1803. Sancho's letters have come and gone out of favor since they were first published, in a pattern that's really similar to past podcast subject Phyllis Wheatley. Although both writers' work was used to support abolition, it was also cited by people like Thomas Jefferson. In Notes on the State of Virginia, Jefferson wrote, quote, Religion indeed has produced a Phyllis Wheatley, but it could not produce a poet. The compositions published under her name are below the dignity of criticism. The heroes of Dunsedad are to her as Hercules to the author of that poem. Ignatius Sancho has approached nearer to merit in composition, yet his letters do more honor to the heart than the head. Sancho's work went out of print in the 19th century, and when it was reprinted in the 1960s, some critics dismissed it as inauthentic and too deferential to white British society, some of the same criticisms that had been applied to Wheatley's poetry in the 20th century. But as was the case with Phyllis Wheatley, in more recent years, critics have given Sancho more credit for his ability to carve out a space for himself in British society and to persistently press his correspondence on issues like racism. In addition to his letters, Sancho was the first Black man to publish music in the European musical tradition. Four collections of his music survive today. Minuets, cotillions, and country dances for the violin, mandolin, German flute, and harpsichord, composed by an African, which came out in 1767. A collection of new songs composed by an African, humbly inscribed to the Honorable Mrs. James Brudenell by her most humble and obedient servant, which came out in 1769. Minuets, etc., etc., for the violin, mandolin, German flute, and harpsichord, book second, composed by an African, which came out in 1770 and 12 country dances for the year 1779 set for the harpsichord by permission humbly dedicated to the right honorable Miss North by her most obedient servant, Ignatius Sancho. All of these works were published for the author, meaning that Sancho paid for the printing himself, which was typical for amateur composers and for professionals who were just starting out. This musical work has been described as reflective of a knowledgeable, capable amateur, a selection of charming songs that were easy for other amateurs to sing and play at home. It's possible that Sancho performed the music he wrote, either at home or at gatherings within London's Black community as well. Manuscripts of these works still exist and are in the collections of the British Museum and the Library of Congress. A theory of music that Sancho wrote, unfortunately, has been lost. There are, though, videos of various ensembles performing selections of this music that you can find online. Yeah, if you Google something like Ignatius Sancho music, you'll find videos of uh, performances and things like that. Ignatius Sancho has also been the subject of a one-man play by Patterson Joseph, who, in addition to his other work, played Connor Mason on the TV show Timeless, which uh, I was a huge fan of and I know many of our listeners were also, this one-man show is called Sancho, An Act of Remembrance. And in a piece called Preface to Sancho, An Act of Remembrance that was published on the website of the British Library, Joseph writes about how many Black Britons trace their identities back to the Windrush generation. That was a a wave of immigration to Britain from the Caribbean, starting with arrivals aboard the HMT Empire Windrush, which arrived on June 22, 1948. Uh, That, of course, is a whole other story, which could be its own episode of the podcast. He writes about how his research into Ignatius Sancho and the time that he was living in, quote, changed forever the meaning of the words Black British. 
Uh, that piece is well worth a read. It's easily found by Googling Preface to Sancho, an act of remembrance. Um, and that is Ignatius Sancho. Do you have a bit of listener mail for us? I do. Before I get to that, um, there are, of course, lots of places to read all of those letters yourself online. Um, the whole thing. It's in the public domain. Uh, I have a super, super quick Facebook comment from Lynn that is in reference to our podcast on James Baldwin. And Lynn writes, just want to let you know that in reference to the James Baldwin podcast, City College of New York was tuition-free until the early 1970s. So Baldwin didn't attend for other reasons. Um, we got a couple of notes about that. One of the biographies of uh, of James Baldwin that I read for the episode characterized his not attending City College of New York as being about not being able to afford the tuition. And in my head, I was like, I thought City College of New York was free. And <laughs> in my Googling of that, the first thing I saw was an, uh, an article that was about a tuition-free um, program for like one particular set of like economically relatively disadvantaged students that New York was rolling out. And I was like, oh, that must have been what I was thinking of and just moved on in my head. Uh, but that is correct. It was not charging tuition as of the 40s. It had been established as a tuition-free uh, learning institution and continued to be so until various economic factors and whatnot caused it to start charging tuition. Um, it probably still was for financial reasons that he didn't go, though. Like, his family was really, really impoverished, and by working instead of going to college, it meant that he was able to help them make ends meet. So I think even though there wasn't tuition involved, that was still the, the root of that matter. So thank you for uh, that correction. I apologize for not going deeply enough <laughs> in fact-checking myself. Um, and if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. And then we're all over social media at Missed in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook and Pinterest and Twitter and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app and Apple Podcasts and anywhere you get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.